Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Morton and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to turn this week to the topic of a, a fascinating piece that you've got in the new issue of City Journal. It's called The Oldest Divide, looking at the gap between rural and urban America. Uh, why don't we just start here by establishing your bona fides on this topic because you sort of live at the intersection of those two worlds. I, explain that and the contrast that you see as you go back and forth between them. Well, I think if we talk about urban or suburban, uh, one of the epitomes of that is Silicon Valley in general and Palo Alto in particular, an upscale, young, hip, techie metropolis. And I work at the Hoover Institution, so I'm there two or three days a week in a studio apartment in downtown Palo Alto. But then I also live the fifth generation in the same house out in rural southwestern Fresno County on a grape farm. And so I grew up there. I know people there. And so when I get up in the morning, I leave a very rural, pretty much impoverished area. And then I go into a highly sophisticated urban corridor. And the values, the language, the comportment, the behavior, is it's like leaving the 19th century and going in the 21st or maybe living, leaving Mississippi and going into Massachusetts all in the same state. You know, so it's Victor, bewildering. It it's primarily the urban elites these days who used the notion of diversity as a sort of shibboleth, and yet you make an interesting argument in your piece that urban life in America, sort of regardless of which city you're in, is increasingly uniform. Explain that. Well, I mean, most people in these very dense environments have, I guess, by needs developed a homogeneous culture. They seem to dress alike. Their voice patterns are alike. They have the same values. Uh, I think 29 of 30 cities in the United States went for Barack Obama in the last election. Everyone except uh, two, I, sus I, I should say, 28, two, except um, Dallas and uh, Salt Lake City. So politically, they're predictable. They're sort of life of Julia, Sandra, Fluke, uh, predictable values left wing, everybody's got to get along, very dependent on government that provides their water, transportation, sewage. And yet when I'm home, if I don't pump out my septic tank and I've done it myself and, <laughs> illegally into the vineyard on a number of times when I was growing <laughs> up and then if I don't – I'm drilling a well right now for my house and uh, my security depends on how quickly I can get a shotgun and go to the door at 2 in the morning if somebody's – plowed into my vineyard. So I, I just assume and everybody in that area assumes that they're responsible for their basic needs and that government is not there to ensure your happiness or security or livelihood in a way that's uh, less true of people who live in urban and suburban areas. That in some ways is the is the core argument of your piece, isn't it? It goes deeper than the fact that people who live in a rural environment might have different interests or different mores than people who live in an urban one. You really think that at some level there's – it creates a different disposition, that rural living leads you to understand life in a fundamentally different way than it does in the city. I think so. Uh, titles don't mean as much. Diction doesn't mean as much. Uh, when I go into a rural store uh, – and there's a lot of them out where I live, the degree to which somebody thinks they can say something to me or, or not say something to me is predicated on what the reaction they think will be. If I uh, 
I don't romanticize nature. I don't really like nature all that much sometimes. Uh, if I walk out and get puncture vines or if I see jimson weeds or if I had a plum crop, I remember one year that it hailed four days before picking. I lost $20,000. So I love the beauty of nature, but I'm not naive enough to think that it's not destructive as well. Whereas people in town, they tend to they buy four-wheel drive SUVs. They have big, heavy uh, down coats. They wear hiking boots, and they can go anywhere, but they go really go nowhere other than a day or two to backpack or go out in the outdoors and rush back inside. That's why something like REI is so popular in all of these camping outlets because they give the urban dweller – they fulfill that need that they need to go out and battle nature even if it's only for a day or two because they've lost the – the accurate, realistic appraisal of what nature is. Victor, I can anticipate how you're going to answer the question I'm about to ask you. I'm sure most of our audience, being fans of yours, can too. But for sheer entertainment value, I can't suppress the instinct to highlight this aspect of your piece. Pajama Boy versus the Marlboro Man. Compare and contrast. Well, Pajama Boy, (laughs) I thought, was a cruel joke on conservatives. In other words, they put this pathetic little urban... Weakling, 98-pound weakling <laughs> adult in pajamas having hot chocolate that nobody's worn pajamas with so, you know, sewn-in soles or whatever they call them or onesies or whatever they call those things, jumpsuit pajamas. And people don't drink hot chocolate in the morning <laughs> usually anymore. And yet I guess it was real. I mean they really thought that this was a way to appeal <laughs> to urbanites to go out and buy Obamacare. And the Marlboro man was sort of – yeah, I know these cigarettes are going to kill me, but you know what? The world is tragic. It's not therapeutic, and I do what I want on my own terms, and I take the consequences. Whether that's completely accurate or not, or there's there's you know there's exceptions to that, or whether Marlboro Man would have checked in for free health care, I don't know. But the image, at least, <laughs> is one of uh, independence and a tragic view of the world, not this – you know, whiny, whimpering, victimized little boy who, who thinks he knows all about Obamacare and can advise somebody what to do. It's a Sandra Fluke, Life of Julia, that the, you wake up in the morning, the government is going to do this and this and this for you. Or Julia, as an infant to an old lady, has always found the government program for her. And there's never a suggestion, hey, Julia, maybe you better go find out where your food comes from. Hey, maybe you better not vote to release six six million acre feet of water from reservoirs in a drought. Hey, Julia, do you pump water? Do you get it from Hetch Hetchy? Do you get it from the California Water Project in Silicon Valley? Where does it come from? Or, hey, Sandra Fluke, do you really have to wait for the government to give you free contraceptives before you can fornicate? That's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of culture we're developing in the urban area. Another thing is we also deprecate independence and physicality and we sort of in this race class gender where we we think people in the inner city are are the modern tough guys or we think that uh, gays are path breaking here and heroic and really they're all these people whether it's Mr. Coates or Cornell Wilde are preaching to a choir what we don't realize is there's a lot of people out in the country in Appalachia and Nebraska that are doing things that are a world away from Black Lives Matter and white privilege. When I saw that recent National Academy of Science studies says that the white class between 45 and 55 uh, without college educations were the only large demographic group to have uh, reduced life expectancy, I could see why that was true because a lot of the, the rural life in America is being devastated 
um, in a variety of ways. You mentioned there a moment ago the issue with the, the water supply in California. I want to talk about this in the context of your your native state, our native state as a matter of fact. You highlight in this piece California as an example of one of the nasty byproducts of this urban-rural split, what you call trivialization. Uh, explain how that plays out there. Well, if you have a worldview that thinks that you can have 19th century California with running rivers from mountains to sea and salmon jumping up in the whitewater, and yet you're afraid to say that that you know it won't support 40 million people in that environment. What you do is you pick and choose. You don't talk about illegal immigration. You don't talk about the growth of urban metropolises like Silicon Valley. You don't talk about the enormous money and capital that's pouring into Hollywood or Napa Valley or the big university centers. Instead, you just dream about these uh, these pet projects. And when you're confronted with reality, like, hey, I'm I'm a tech and I voted or I, I support letting water out to the sea for a smelt or, or a salmon and boy, it's a drought and there's no more water and the reservoirs are empty. What am I going to do? That's the problem. They don't have any answers for it. They're not they're, – at some point, they're subject to the ramifications of their own ideology and that's what I, – I don't think they, they get that, that they live in a highly vulnerable uh, state with a very thin margin of error and they don't know anything about how the water works, where their power comes from, where their timber comes from, where their granite counter comes from. And they're now – they're pressing on it so much that it, there's no guarantee that these things are going to be there for them. Here's a really interesting moral formulation in your piece and I'm going to present it here without context because I want you to expand on it. Um, okay. But I think it has really provocative implications. Quote, Rural folk count on shame among intimates, not private guilt to enforce morality, close quote. Take it from there. Well, if I'm in my apartment Palo Alto with the other 100 uh, apartment dwellers whose names I don't know. I don't, I don't even know who they are. I don't know where they come from. I don't know who their families were. And uh, if somebody – you know, steals a bicycle, then he's supposed to not steal a bicycle because he's, a, you know, he's guilty about it or he feels that, you know, it wasn't the right thing to do. But if I'm out in the country and I'm lazy or I've done something wrong and my neighbors know my family and they can see the visible manifestations of my sloth and I'm not going anywhere, I can't escape into the anonymity of urban life, then I'm really worried about the guilt that it incurs for me and my children and my ancestors. But people in the ta in cities are dislocated in terms of time and space. We don't know when they got to a particular place. We don't know when they're going to go. I think I'm the longest uh, residing resident in Park Towers, about nine, hour, uh, nine years in Palo Alto. But I don't know when people come or when people go. They're not subject to any social shame or coercion. Um, and I think you can see that throughout urban life today. Nobody has any uh, worry about shaming them. If I say you're going to shame your family name, you feel like that you're a relic from the 19th century. There is no such thing as shame. There's no such thing as a family name. There's not even a reputation. What I mean by private guild is this word, I take full responsibility when I lie, like Hillary Clinton or even David Triptreus, whoever they are, they always say, I take full responsibility. What does that mean? It just means you feel guilty about it for a while, but you don't incur any 
social shame or disparagement or it doesn't it's not it's not career ending in the sense that you can't show your face because you've done something so badly so final question although we could go on here forever but the attitude towards the agrarian life amongst the founders very different than the one that's dominant now. Jefferson in particular was famously romantic about the sort of rural existence. How did those views shape the United States and what does our departure from them augur for the country's future? Well, I can assure you that when you read the Daybook of John Adams or you read Hamilton or Monroe or Madison or Washington or Franklin, especially Jefferson again, or you read later commentaries like Core or Tocqueville, you don't get the impression that their idea of a stable agrarian enterprise was going to rest on a highly uh, affluent, leisured, secularized, childless, urban elite as we see today. Mm-hmm. And yet that's what we have. And what they thought uh, would keep the United States different from the pyramid society of Europe where you had uh, – vast aristocratic landowners and peasants without a rural class was everybody would have a piece of ground. They would have a family there. They would be independent and autonomous. They wouldn't be subject to the pressures of a landlord, et cetera, et cetera. And while that has been superseded because of the nature of farming and agriculture and technology, we still need these pockets of people, independent truckers, independent uh, 7-Eleven owners, independent farmers, independent ranchers, independent anybody who gets up in the morning and doesn't know how much he's going to make or what he's going to do, but he's confident in his own degree of muscle and nerve and intelligence to create an independent existence rather than just to plug himself into some large superstructure. And that's what's really scary is this – you can really see it in, in um, mass hysteria that you see in the United States today. One day you can wake up and gay marriage is – you know, it's a Christian thing that uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama both approve of exclusively between a man and a woman. The next day you're homophobic if you don't. And same thing with Paula Dean or any of these figures that goes from saint to sinner in a nanosecond. It's a reflection of a lot of people who don't have a sense of self, individualism, and confidence in their own ability to withstand criticism and and uh, and are, are you know confident in what they believe in. They like to be independent. I don't know how you can teach somebody to be that way when the conditions under which they live are so dense. And they're so dependent on government and people that they don't even know who they are or where they are for their daily needs. All right. The piece is The Oldest Divide. You can read it in the newest issue of City Journal. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And In the meantime, stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.